on Sunday morning, September 22nd, in Pakistan, members of a Taliban offshoot attacked a historic church in Peshawar, killing more than 80 and injuring more than 150 when two suicide bombers detonated their vests inside the All Saints Church. 500 worshipers were sharing a meal on the grounds of the church that morning. It was the deadliest attack on Christians in Pakistan ever. A few weeks ago in Eritrea, a group of 185 Christians had gathered for a prayer meeting in a suburb of Asmara, the capital city. And while praying for their country, security forces raided the building and arrested everyone in the group, including around 80 women and children. And many were later released, but were sternly warned not to meet any longer. And they were forced to sign an agreement, indicating they would not meet again Anyone who refused to sign the agreement are still detained this morning. About the same time of these arrests in Eritrea, one sister by the name of Hazit Berhain Debasai, who was in her 30s, died from pneumonia following a year of imprisonment in harsh conditions where she was denied access to medical treatment because she refused to denounce her Christian faith. Christians still suffer persecution. And as has already been mentioned today, and as you see on the screen there, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And we join thousands of other churches scattered around the world to remember and pray for our brothers and sisters who are experiencing persecution, especially those in areas where the persecution moves beyond verbal ridicule or a cold shoulder to imprisonment and torture and death. Today we remember and pray for Christians like our 13-year-old sister Victoria in northern Nigeria, who watched her brother and her daddy die on a Sunday morning after a group of men interrupted their singing and filled their fellowship with gunfire. We want to pray for many other people suffering just like Victoria this morning. And just following the sermon and a short video clip that you'll see, we're going to devote a portion of this morning praying for the persecuted church. But before we enter that time of prayer, I want us to consider God's purposes in the suffering of his people. We're not going to look at just one passage of scripture this morning, but a host of passages that help us understand God's purposes in the suffering of his people as they spread Christ's name to the ends of the earth. The central question that comes to people's minds when they read these stories, the cry of the human heart when we look at the suffering and martyrdom of other Christians is why. And I want to appoint you to a few places in Scripture this morning that help to answer at least some of that 
why question when it comes to Christian persecution. I'm not going to pretend to answer all of that why question. Some of those answers are hidden from us in the eternal counsels of God. But I will take you to a few places in Scripture where God in His wisdom and in His kindness to us has revealed some of His purposes to us in the suffering of His people. I want to be clear here. The suffering of God's people is not merely happenstance. It's not merely the coincidence of Christians living in a hostile world. Christian persecution happens according to God's will and design for the gospel to advance through a suffering church. Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 10, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I think we know what happens to sheep in the midst of wolves. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. That's the persecution. Here's the divine design behind it. To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Or 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Those who suffer... According to God's will. Or Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11, where we get the picture of the martyrs under the altar. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. And get this, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Christian persecution happens according to God's design for the gospel to advance through a suffering church. God is not less in control when his saints die than when he keeps them alive. Nothing in the universe escapes God's authority and control, including the persecution of his people. But why do they suffer? Why do they suffer like this? Why are they persecuted? And I want to point you to at least six purposes God has revealed to us when it comes to the suffering of his people. But before I get to those, I want to make a few clarifications that will help us. First clarification is that the particular suffering I have in mind this morning is the hostility and ridicule and violence that rises against a Christian Pursuing what honors Christ at all costs. 
In other words, we're not just talking about the suffering one might encounter for simply being American or belonging to a Western culture. We're talking about the suffering one encounters for being in Christ and for belonging to Jesus. We're talking about We're not talking about the flack you get for being a good old boy. We're talking about the flack you get when your morality is explicitly and publicly grounded in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible often refers to this as suffering for righteousness sake. Or persecution for the sake of Jesus' name. Or the risk of your life for the sake of the gospel. Much of what I say about God's purposes and suffering can also apply to all our suffering in a general sense, but today we're focusing on the particular suffering related to the uniqueness of our testimony and our public allegiance to Jesus Christ at all costs. The second clarification is that we can have a tendency... To think of the persecuted church as an entity that's kind of out there, separate from us. It's something over there in Afghanistan or North Korea, Mauritania, Laos, Belarus. But that persecuted church is not really part of us. But I want you to consider more seriously that if you belong to Jesus then you belong to the brothers and sisters experiencing more intense persecution for their faith. You belong to them because you share in the blessings of the same gospel. You share in the same spirit. You share in the same mission. And you share in the hope of the same kingdom of God. Our identity as Christians is bound up with them in the same household of faith or in the same brotherhood as Peter calls it in 1 Peter 5. And so in the same way that Jesus left heaven to identify with your flesh for your good, Hebrews 13 commands us to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body... We are commanded to identify with their brutal sufferings and their tears and their losses and care for them accordingly as they are part of us. A third clarification. In an age of increasing terrorism, where there is a growing pattern of religious martyrdom like suicidal bombings in the name of radical Islam. I need to clarify that Christian suffering and martyrdom is not the pursuit of death and it does not aim at taking lives to advance the gospel. Christian suffering and martyrdom pursues Love, even if it means death. Even when it means somebody else taking your life, not you taking theirs. While history sadly proves otherwise, Christians should not take life 
to advance the gospel, but offer life while laying down their own. When the world dishes out the hatred and the lies and the violence, we, just like our Savior, respond with love, truth, and self-sacrifice. And then the fourth and last clarification. When we look in just a moment at God's purposes in the suffering of his people, we're not, just, we're not doing so merely for the persecuted church out there. We're looking at God's purposes in the suffering of his people to understand authentic Christian discipleship, period. It is true, even within Scripture, that some Christians will suffer more than others. You can see that in several examples in the book of Acts. Some of the things that Paul says in his letters, or even Jesus in the Gospel of John, where he tells Peter at the end in chapter 21, Peter, you're going to, somebody else is going to dress you and you'll spread your hands. And John tells us that Jesus was telling Peter how he was going to die. But he didn't give the same charge to John. So it is true that some will suffer more than others, but suffering for the sake of the gospel is just as much our calling as it is theirs. Just think of the number of places in Scripture teaching us that suffering and persecution is a normal, even expected part of the Christian life. Jesus taught the disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, They will, they will persecute you. Or in Acts 14, Paul is going around planting church after church after church, and then he's coming back and through, and he's discipling and encouraging the saints there, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and he's teaching them, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Or in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter even says that such suffering is our calling. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. That's the calling, following in the steps of Jesus as he suffered. Jesus and the apostles assume the normal lifestyle of all Christians includes interaction with and opposition from a world hostile to the gospel. The only church the New Testament knows is a suffering church because there's a cross that we all took up when we entered the church. We broke off our love affair with the world and surrendered our lives to a Lord who said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Or unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life, I mean, whoever loves his life loses it, And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer had it right. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but the cross meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Looking at the purposes of suffering and the spreading of Christ's name is not merely to help us think about the brothers and sisters out there, but to prepare the brothers and sisters in here. This sermon is preparation for the sufferings bound up with the basic Christian life, the pursuit of godliness, and the advance of the gospel. I listen when a man like Richard Wormbrand, a Romanian pastor who suffered for 14 years of imprisonment and torture, says this. The role of preparation for suffering must start now. It's too difficult to prepare yourself for suffering when the communists have already put you in prison. Part of our preparation is remembering that when we suffer for the sake of the gospel, we're not suffering because things are out of control or because we must not be called by God or because God is not near us or because God must be punishing us or because everything is just meaningless under the sun. No, when the saints suffer for the sake of the gospel, God has purposes for us to remember. In the spread of Christ's name. And they help us to endure the suffering with patience and with trust. What we need most in times of suffering is not all the answers. But a God that we can trust. These purposes help us understand God and his ways in Christ. So that we might learn to trust him now. Before they come upon us. So let me now point you to several purposes God has for Christian suffering in the spread of Christ's name. In fact, we're going to look briefly at six of them. And each of them relates to and builds on the other. So number one, a purpose of Christian persecution is to spread the church's witness. It's to spread the church's witness strategically. I get this from the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Remember that. In All Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And sure enough, in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit does come. The apostles preach in Jerusalem and the church begins to grow. 2,000, 3,000. But it's not until chapter 8 that we get any kind of movement outward to the nations. To Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And here's what Luke says scatters them in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. This comes just on the heels of the Jews stoning Stephen to death. It says, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. Little did we know at the beginning of Acts that when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, that persecution would play such a role in relocating the saints right where God wanted them. In Judea and Samaria, proclaiming Christ. Luke even mentions this again in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're getting to the ends of the earth. Gentiles hearing the good news. We're getting to the ends of the earth because of God strategically scattering the church's witness through persecution. And the persecution doesn't just scatter the church and leave them scared, hunkered up in some holes in the ground. They go on to proclaim the word. Where did that boldness come from? Second purpose. Christian persecution emboldens the church's witness. It emboldens the church's witness. We see this implicitly in the way those who are scattered, on, scattered go on preaching the word in the book of Acts. But we also see it explicitly in Paul's letter to the Philippians that he writes to them from his own prison cell. So if you go with me to Philippians 1... Philippians 1, I'll start reading in verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Again, we see that... That one of the purposes for persecution is to spread the church's witness. The whole imperial guard has come to know why Paul's in prison. Because of Christ. Now verse 14. And on top of that, most of the brothers, most of those who are already Christians, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. And are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. 
These are the Christians back in Rome who aren't in prison while Paul's in prison under their governing authorities. Paul's imprisonment doesn't cause them to run and hide. It actually gives them confidence and more boldness to speak the word without fear. Has it ever occurred to you that when, whenever you hear a story on the internet of Christians being persecuted, or you read a news release from a ministry like Voice of the Martyrs, or receive the prayer inserts once a month that we put in your worship guides, we pray for the nations and the persecuted. Has it ever occurred to you that the persecution that, when, that, that the persecution you read of happening is meant to embolden you in the proclamation of the gospel of Christ? The persecution that you read of happening out there is supposed to embolden you in here. Our hearts have a very difficult time interpreting things that way, especially when we're sitting in the comforts of America. We're usually intimidated by authorities putting people in prison for the gospel, not emboldened to preach it all the more. Our minds begin racing to everything we will lose in this world instead of everything we will gain in the age to come. That's not true freedom in America. That's bondage. So to help free us from that bondage, the Lord also has a, per- has a third purpose in persecution. Number three, Christian persecution keeps our longings in the right age. Keeps our longings in the right age. You're not emboldened to proclaim the gospel by the fact that another brother or sister is merely, merely has chains on their wrists. You're emboldened by the fact that another brother or sister is wearing chains while still hoping in the resurrection. That's why Paul tells us later in Philippians that his longing is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Suffering. Torture and death, or worse, the torture and death of the loved ones in your life, puts us face to face with the reality of death and the temporary nature of this present age. And the question you must answer is, do I really believe God raises the dead? Do I really believe that God raised my Lord Jesus from the dead? And will he raise me on the last day? Is he really bringing this eternal kingdom or not? Is my treasure there or here? That's what persecutions and hardships even taught the Apostle Paul. Paul's not a super Christian. He's a man like us whom the Lord had to sanctify through the crucible of suffering. Listen to Paul spell out God's purpose in his own persecution. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia... 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And here's the purpose. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. He's got three different deliverings there. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. That's what they experienced back in Asia. He will deliver us from more deadly perils. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That is at the resurrection. This is how God works in his people through suffering and persecution. He means means it for our holiness, not our destruction. Satan means it for our destruction. God means it for our holiness and our perseverance, our conformity to the image of his son. He uses it to remind us of the resurrection hope of the gospel. That because God raised Jesus from the dead, our lives are not bound up with this present age, but with an age that is to come. The world will threaten us with cold prison cells in Siberia, dark retention rooms underground, a whip across your little boy's back, or the poisoning of your food, or a firing squad. We may very well despair even of life itself. But not for nothing. God does it to keep our longings in the right age where we will enjoy the treasures of all, the treasure of all treasures, Jesus Christ. And that's a fourth purpose God has for Christian persecution is to display the value of Jesus Christ. To display the value of Jesus Christ. What I mean is that the value of something is measured by what we're willing to give in order to have it. Consider Jesus' parable of the treasure in the field. In Matthew 13, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy the field. Not for the field, but for the treasure that's in the field. Where do we see the worth of the treasure being displayed? The worth of the treasure is displayed in that the man sells everything he has in order to make it his possession. The same is true of the Christian life. God displays the worth of Jesus Christ to the world when his people are willing to give up everything to have him even their own lives in this world. Let me just point you to one place where this really shines, and that's in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. I'll begin in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach 
and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How in the world does that happen? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They smashed you in your windows. They came in, crushed your iPhone, sliced up your lazy boy, keyed your car, put sugar in the gas tank, and you respond with joy. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. When you have a better possession and an abiding one in Jesus Christ, the comforts of this present age cannot hold you in bondage. The temporary thrills of the American dream, living life for a job, make a little money, start living for a car... Get yourself a house, wife, kids, and a dog. Thank you, Lecrae. Then retire to play golf. Those things cannot enslave you such that when the threats rise of stripping them from you, even unto death, you can still sing of your greater possession in Jesus Christ. In a world of fleeting pleasures vying for everyone's attention, God means to display through the suffering of his people that Jesus surpasses them all. The nations must be helped to see the value of Jesus Christ, not simply through an occasional thank you at the dinner table or at work, or even our regular attendance to services on Sunday, but in the self-sacrificial living and dying of his people as they proclaim the gospel. That leads us right into a fifth purpose for Christian suffering. Namely, we suffer to exemplify the way Christ loved us. We suffer to exemplify the way Christ loved us. That doesn't mean we exemplify Christ's atonement for sins. Only Jesus' death can atone for our sins. He alone is God's one and only Son. He alone humbled himself to take on our humanity. He alone is without sin... He alone drank the cup of God's wrath that was due to us. And he alone can give us an alien righteousness to stand before God on judgment day without fear of hell. Not a single one of us could or ever need to exemplify Jesus' atoning death. Rather, Jesus' atoning death is what liberates and motivates us to imitate his love. Not his atoning death but his love. The nature of his love was that he laid down his life for our eternal good with God the Father. 1 John 3.16 says that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that is for our benefit with God. The Bible says that we are to follow in Jesus' steps. Christians are to lay down their lives for the eternal good of others in God, and that only comes with suffering and self-sacrifice. When we live this way, we authenticate with our lives the message of Christ's love that we preach to others. This is much of what Paul has in mind when he says, 
this to the Colossians in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? If we know his death is truly a saving death, that there's nothing lacking in what it achieved for sinners, that it is totally sufficient to forgive the sins of all who believe, then what could possibly be lacking? What is lacking is the visible presentation of Christ's afflictions to the world. And God intends for that visible presentation of Christ's afflictions to be filled up through the afflictions of his own people. Think of it, when Christians love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them, when Christians entrust themselves to a faithful judge despite the ridicule they receive from their enemies, when Christians do not repay evil with evil but overcome evil with good, when Christians return to a village the third time with grace and love and compassion after being chased out and stoned, and left to die, the self-sacrificial love of Jesus goes on display through his people again and again and again. This is why Paul could speak of always carrying in his body the death of Jesus Christ. We see the same life in 1 Peter 2. We read some of it earlier. Peter says, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What's the purpose of following in his steps? So that people see that the Christ you're proclaiming was like this He committed no sin. Neither was defeat, deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When Christians suffer and they do not revile in return, and they do not, and, and when they suffer, they do not threaten their opponents but continue entrusting themselves to the one who judges justly. The afflictions of Christ are put on display. The love of Christ goes public. God designed Christian suffering to exemplify the way Christ loved us. Nothing about our lives belongs merely to us. Even our own bodies are set apart to do, for God to do with them as he sees fit in helping the world see his love in Jesus Christ more clearly. Even when that means death. But such a thought that God might even use us to suffer for his name may very well cause your hearts to faint under the tremendous weight of the calling. It should. We will be tempted to panic. Panic. 
we will be tempted to raise the white flag under the severity of the circumstances. What if it hurts? Will I still remain faithful to Jesus? So there's one more purpose for suffering that we should cling to now before the fiery trial comes upon us. Indeed, that should be our song before the fiery trials reach us. And that is this. God designed Christian suffering to magnify Christ's all-conquering love. God designed Christian suffering to magnify Christ's all-conquering love. The saints that we will pray for in a few minutes are magnifying the all-conquering love of Christ because their lives bear witness that our Savior's all-conquering love cannot be thwarted by death and it, cannot be, it, it will not let them go despite the temptations of the enemy. That's what the end of Romans 8 is all about and what's, what makes Romans 8 so precious for a suffering church. Romans 8 is only precious to you when you suffer. Let me read Romans 8, 35 to 39 over you to further solidify this reality in your hearts. This is Romans 8. This is in a context of suffering. In fact, not only the persecution that we would face, back in verse 17 of Romans 8, Paul says that if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. The inheritance belongs to those who suffer with Christ. And then he goes on and talks about the sufferings of this present age. Not just persecution in itself, but just the fact that we're living in a fallen world. And then he goes on and says these words. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's what we are in Christ. That's what Paul's using the Old Testament psalm to point out. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's what you signed up for when you believed in Jesus. We are regarded as sheep... To be slaughtered. So, so are all these things going to win out? The persecution, the distress? No. It says in all these things. Not apart from them, but in all of them. In the tribulation, in the distress, in the persecution, in the famine, in the nakedness, in the danger, in the sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
That passage is not promising that the love of God in Christ will keep us from suffering, but that the love of God in Christ will keep us through the suffering. Indeed, the suffering will make God's love in Christ shine all the more brightly in the world. Just think, when nothing can overcome nothing in this world, nothing, no interrogation officer and his threats, no jail cell underground where you don't see a flower for years, nothing will be able to loosen the grip of God's love on you in Christ. Not even torture and death. And Jesus proved that when he walked out of the grave himself on your behalf. When nothing can overcome his loving grip on you, then every risk-taking journey to preach Jesus among hostile people becomes opportunity to make the strength of his love public. Visible for the world. When purposes like these are hidden in our hearts, then we'll be able to say to communist investigators what Pastor Joseph Son said to them in the 1980s. This is in communist Romania at the time. After daily threats were leveled against Mr. Son, Mr. Son responded like so. Sir, let me explain to you, this is to the interrogation officer, let me explain to you how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I better listen again to what this man preached because he really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, you see, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you... Kill me. What in the world do you do with a man like that? If you kill him, then Christ's name is magnified through his blood. If you don't kill him, then Christ's name is magnified through his preaching. Apparently, Joseph's son got word that one of the officers said, We know that Mr. Son would love to be a martyr, but we're not that foolish to fulfill his wish. That's life insurance. When, uh, when Joseph's son got word that the officer had said that, listen to how he responds. And some of you in here who are thinking like, good night, I could never s- suffer like this. I would never be able to say like this. Take heart at this. He says, I, I stopped... To consider the meaning of his statement. I remembered how for many years. I had been afraid of dying. 
I had kept a low profile. So again, like Paul, not a super Christian. He's taught these things. I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile. Because I wanted badly to live, I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing that I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. That's all the scripture is asking. That we're willing to lose our life. That we might find it in Christ. We're going to enter a time of prayer now. Asking the Lord to strengthen our persecuted brothers and sisters. And so if you'll go ahead and pull out that green uh, insert in your worship guide. Before we do that, we're going to watch a short video clip though. From Open Doors. Ministries, and uh, as soon as the video clip has ended, would you just uh, gather yourself into little clusters all over the, the room and commit the persecuted church to prayer using that, those, uh, some of those points uh, that we've given you there? Um, and then when I come up to close us in prayer, would that be the key for the offering ushers to come forward in that time as well? So 